0: And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm Dr. Kat. Once again, I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. This topic talking about transgender, genderqueer, and gender diverse issues during the perinatal period has been on my wish list to talk about for a while. And as usual with a lot of our topics, we're going to be kind of touching on the surface. There's really a lot to know here. And our guest, Abby, is going to be giving us some really, really good information to start our understanding, at least on this podcast. We're going to touch a little bit on pronoun use and then move on to specific issues around depression and anxiety or stress that might come up as it relates to being transgender or genderqueer. And then also some additional cultural or unseen stressors that might show up in healthcare settings or with medical care providers and things that we can be doing better. Our guest today, Abby Rolfe, is a master's level graduate student in clinical mental health counseling. They are a behavioral health student intern at Metro Inclusive Health in St. Petersburg, Florida. Abby is a member of WPATH, ALGBTIC, and is actively working toward becoming a gender specialist. Abby's intersectional identities include being queer. This and other minority identities informs the lens through which they practice. They are sex positive and kink aware. Abby's areas of interest include gender inclusive perinatal mental health, grief and loss, trauma, and consensual non-monogamy. As usual, I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode or any of our other episodes, please feel free to reach out to momandmind at gmail.com we are really open to hearing from you. So without further ado, let's meet Abby. Welcome, Abby. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk with you and to learn about issues facing transgender, queer gender, and gender diverse folks during the perinatal period. And I would love for you to Kind of give us to start off a little bit with some fundamentals, especially for people who this topic is new information or they might not have any perspective about this topic for kind of just to start with some kind of 101, some fundamental information for us to learn and to know about working with the transgender population in the perinatal period.
1: Absolutely. So before we jump right in, I want to provide a little disclaimer that throughout the course of today's interview, I'll be using the word transgender as an inclusive term to also refer to individuals who are genderqueer, non-binary, gender diverse, and gender expansive. So essentially, anyone whose gender identity or the way they experience themselves is incongruent or not entirely congruent with the sex they were assigned at birth. Additionally, any percentages and research that I share are referring to individuals in the United States.
0: Okay, thank you. That's incredibly helpful. And also, I feel like that is a good part of kind of the fundamentals for us to be all working from is there are some terms that people may not be familiar with. And so any kind of kind of loose definition that you can give us would be really awesome.
1: Absolutely. So in the community, transgender is widely used as the largest umbrella term for an individual whose gender identity or experienced gender is not exclusively congruent with their sex assigned at birth. And under the transgender umbrella, there are other smaller umbrellas, if you will. There are individuals who experience binary gender who are male or female, so trans man or trans woman. And then there are those of us who are Our identity is not exclusively binary, and that would include people who identify as genderqueer or are non-binary, agender, meaning without gender, those who are two-spirit, or the variety of ways that people can self-identify their nuanced gender
0: experience. Okay, thank you. That is incredibly helpful. And within that, also in terms of just how people identify in different ways of use of pronouns, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So, the most important thing is to not assume a person's pronouns based on the way that they present or based on the identity you may know them as. So, the greatest way to find this out, find out a person's pronouns, is to introduce yourself. My name's Abby. My pronouns are they, them. How would you like to be addressed? And this opens the door for that individual to share with you the name that they want to be called by, as well as the pronouns that they use, if they use pronouns. Some individuals may be gender neutral, gender queer, non-binary, and may choose to not use a pronoun. And oftentimes in those situations, request to be called by uh,
0: the name they want to be called. Fantastic. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you. I think it's a good education too. Again, I'm kind of thinking as maybe I mentioned to you before and kind of talking about this, really wanting to give the therapists and or people listening out there some of the like fundamentals and basics because depending on where people are listening to either in the country or in the world, they might not have that much exposure or access to people who use pronouns differently than themselves. So this is incredibly important. And I think also useful for us to be all on the same page in terms of language and identification and how it's used.
1: Absolutely. And we know that language is so important, particularly when you're talking with minority populations and traditionally oppressed populations. So in terms of pronouns, the the most affirming thing that you can do when you're opening up or meeting a new client is introducing yourself and sharing your own pronouns, which may take some practice for people who are unaccustomed to this, but you are opening a door and letting folks know that this is a safe place to share your authentic pronouns and to be known authentically.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So then I would be announcing myself as I'm Kat, I go by she or her. Absolutely. And that opens the door for other people to feel as comfortable as they want to feel about introducing themselves in those same ways. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> awesome. So I wonder if that you see people who are kind of in the dominant culture and are used to being called she or her based on what they look like, if they're finding this difficult or awkward or they feel like they don't need to because it's obvious, so to speak, to them. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely, and I found that that is a pretty common experience. Folks who are cisgender, meaning their gender identity and self-experienced gender, is congruent with their sex assigned at birth. Oftentimes, it's taken for granted that folks will know your pronouns and use the correct pronouns. So part of shaking this boat and changing our culture even is acknowledging that there can be no assumptions, that based on the way a person presents, There is no way to know what their pronouns
0: are. Right. I mean, obviously, and traditionally, and there's a long history, at least in most Western cultures, that it's either him or her. There's two options in those old views, which wasn't actually the truth. It's just all that was kind of accepted or allowed.
2: If you're a
3: parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent.
1: Right. With particularly with Abrahamic religion coming in without getting too deep into it, there was man and there was woman. And so traditionally we had he, him, his, and she, her, hers pronouns. Mm -hmm, Right. Um, But now we're coming in with folks more commonly using they, them pronouns or, Mm -hmm. oh gosh, there really is a plus of pronouns that people can use, many of which are uncommon. And I am happy to share a link about practice with pronouns and all of those different pronouns that folks can use.
0: Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. And I'll include that link in our show notes for people to reference. So this would be like a learning tool for people who want to learn more about pronoun use.
1: Absolutely. The pronouns that are available to be used and how to use them appropriately.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Is there anything else that we should know about language and or pronouns?
1: Talking about language, I'm so glad you bring that up because oftentimes when we talk about the perinatal period, it's referred to as maternity or maternal mental health. And that language in and of itself, mater, was mother. So much of our language is focused around womanhood and motherhood and the implication of femininity with that. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that transgender people who... Have the internal reproductive organs to be able to carry children, have been doing so for quite some time. And those individuals may not identify with womanhood or motherhood. Mm -hmm. So, our language using perinatal is so important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for emphasizing that. Yeah, there's been quite a shift to move into perinatal rather than maternal because it affects everybody, everyone who's having a baby, either the birthing person or partner or grandparents or whoever is doing the, the primary care, but also it's like a family. Oftentimes perinatal mental health issues are a family concern as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah, another fantastic reason for people to be adopting perinatal is to be all inclusive of everybody's experience. So thank you for that.
1: Sure. So there are a couple of fundamental issues, or there are a couple of fundamental things that we know based on research, and common knowledge that are going to inform this conversation. The most important is that we know the rate of anxiety and depression exists at a much greater rate in the transgender community than in the general public. And estimates range between 30 to 50% within mm. the transgender community.
0: That's generally across the board, not perinatal.
1: Correct. That's just generally uh-huh. across the board. We know that anxiety and depression in and of itself exists at a much higher rate. Sure. And we also know that transgender people have a lifetime suicide rate of 40%. So, keeping very these high. things in mind, yeah, very high. So, keeping these things in mind when we're talking about the perinatal period and changes in hormones and additional stressors will be important to note that these already exist in a potentially higher rate and may potentially pose additional issues.
0: Right. So I guess what that says to me is that already at a high risk of depression, anxiety, then entering into the perinatal phase would put them at higher risk of a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. That's my assumption based on what you said.
1: And that would be my assumption as well. And I think it's a safe assumption. Unfortunately, we don't have the research and the numbers to back it up yet.
0: Yeah, that was my next question because I realized I'm making huge assumptions and gosh, so there's not really enough research out there to support that theory?
1: No, unfortunately, there's only a handful of research about the perinatal period for transgender people.
0: Okay, so from what you've seen, heard or learned about, that feels accurate though, that the risk is higher? Yes, yes.
1: And not only because we know that anxiety and depression exists at a higher rate. But also if, for example, if a transgender man, so someone who was assigned female at birth and who may or may not have medically transitioned, which would potentially include hormones or surgeries, if they still have a uterus, they could potentially carry a child. So in order to become pregnant, typically folks have to come off of the testosterone therapy. Mm -hmm. And some of the effects of testosterone therapy are permanent. Some of them are not.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: So the experience of coming off testosterone, potentially menses, returning, the process of becoming pregnant, whatever that looks like for the individual, is, can potentially bring about gender dysphoria, which in turn raises those rates of anxiety
0: and depression. Okay, that makes sense to me. Can you please explain gender dysphoria to our audience?
1: Sure. So gender dysphoria is something that's experienced in some transgender people. It is not a criteria to have gender dysphoria in order to be determined to be transgender. Transgender is just the incongruence. Being transgender is the incongruence between gender identity and sex assigned at birth. Gender dysphoria is a separate issue, which is categorized as a persistent discomfort between one's sex assigned at birth Sex roles and the gender that people are perceived versus their experienced gender and lived gender. So, a person does not need to experience gender dysphoria in order to be transgender.
0: But if they are experiencing gender dysphoria, the likelihood of having anxiety or a clinical level of anxiety is higher.
1: Yes, generally, yes. Mm -hmm. Because that dysphoria often manifests as anxiety or depression.
0: Okay. Yeah. Can we talk about how the hormones might affect the mood? Sure. So
1: for individuals who go
0: through the gatekeeping
1: model of beginning hormone therapy, which is having to go to a therapist to get a letter to take to their doctor, one of the parts of screening and preparation that we talk about is the potential effects on mood of starting hormones. So what we know for anyone beginning cross-sex hormone therapy is that there's a potential for pre-existing mood and mental health conditions to be exacerbated by the addition of those new hormones. Mm -hmm. So while it may be an exciting time for the person individually beginning those hormones and to begin the process of medically becoming more authentic with their gender, if that's part of the transition that they choose, there is a potential for mental health changes because of the added hormones. So likewise, if a person is coming off of Hormones. In order to become pregnant, the reverse can happen, where they can begin to fluctuations in their mental health and in their moods because of coming off of those hormones.
0: Sure, and I'm assuming that you don't really know how sensitive your body's going to be to hormone changes until you're having them or you're in the middle of those. So imagine it's a really sensitive time in terms of kind of keeping an eye on on how they're responding.
1: Absolutely. And so it's essential to have supports in place for that person to be able to draw on if they need.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And unfortunately with that, we also have very little research, of course, coming off of hormones and the effects of pregnancy hormones on mental health for transgender individuals. We just don't have the research to support that. But what we do know is that people coming off of For example, cisgender women coming off of hormonal birth control, that can impact their mental health and moods.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So it
1: is fair to say that the same would potentially be true for individuals, of course, accounting for individual differences, and some folks may have no difficulty at all.
0: Sure, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's a pretty safe perspective to take. Just really like assuming that we should be careful instead of assuming that like, it'll be fine, which, you know, especially, which oftentimes happens to, you know, OBs who are taking people off of birth control make that assumption like, oh, everybody does it so you'll be fine. But there's so many other factors at play, so many other things changing and transitioning throughout the process that you're describing that that would be confounding factors for anxiety or depression.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, and the individual's perspective of how they see the perinatal period, pregnancy, and parenthood will largely shape their experience and may impact their gender dysphoria. So anecdotally, some individuals, for example, some transgender men have said that they felt the most masculine when they were pregnant and carrying that life. For others, they've said that it has exacerbated their gender dysphoria, and for others in the middle they were sort of ambivalent or it had no effect on their
0: hormones. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, don't make assumptions about people and their experience. That's like essential. When you were describing that, it also made me wonder what the impact and the interplay is of healthcare professionals in this situation where like if they are affirming and they get it, that would be a very different experience than having a healthcare provider, therapist or whatever, who doesn't get it or who says things that end up being shaming or any other number of things. How have you seen this play out? So from the 2016
1: National Transgender Discrimination Survey, at least 30% of the respondents said that they have experienced at least one negative medical experience in the prior year, which included being denied medical care, insurance coverage, and even facing assault or harassment at the doctor's office.
0: Is that in general or specifically for a perinatal patient?
1: That's in general, huh. Okay. in general across the board for medical mm-hmm. care, because we have so little information about the perinatal period and okay. how that impacts medical care. And for safety reasons, individuals may not disclose to their medical provider that they're transgender, uh-huh. or they may elect to use a midwife, birth center, home birth, and not be involved in a large medical system where that information might be tracked a bit more carefully.
0: Oh, sure. That would be, Or my assumption then, is that that would be a safer environment, like a birth center.
1: Right, safer right. for their identity to be respected.
0: Yes, absolutely. And what other ways have you seen or heard for, specifically for perinatal people during the perinatal period, the kind of interplay with healthcare providers?
1: So anecdotally, folks have reported that having a transgender or queer birth worker, whether that's a doula or midwife present, or even transgender knowledgeable and affirming, has significantly mitigated the effects of any trauma throughout the course of the perinatal period. Uh Unfortunately, what transgender people experience, even just the expectation of getting pregnant, discussions online often center around How do I tell my providers that I'm transgender? How do I tell my providers what pronouns I use? How do I address it with my providers if they call me mom and I have a beard and am a man and don't identify with that? So there's this minority stress Mm -hmm. that, that often comes up before individuals even become pregnant of how to navigate the system. So having people in place who already know how to navigate it, who are already affirming, who are willing to be there throughout the process significantly can impact that stress and the subsequent potential trauma.
0: Sure. Like even if someone is going to be birthing in like a traditional medical hospital environment to have a doula or someone there who is supportive and affirming. Absolutely.
1: And a person that can run interference. So that transgender person isn't having to explain to every person in the room I'm a man, I am dad, my pronouns are he, him, that doula can run interference with those providers. So say the individual's in a hospital, at shift change, the doula can be the one to make sure that everyone's on the same page, to make sure that everyone is aware of the birth plan and how to be best affirming to that individual.
0: Mm -hmm. Like the conversation we're having could go five million ways and it should last like three or four days. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: I'm chuckling because I I so agree with you. Um, If you'd like, we can talk about the process of becoming pregnant and fertility and beginning, you know, without assumptions or not having assumptions from there as well.
0: Yeah, I think that would be really good. And specifically, also adding in kind of the stress load of that process and how that might impact anxiety or depression.
1: Absolutely. So
0: Okay, yeah, great.
1: So the medical system is largely cisgender and heterosexual normative. So the assumption that parents coming in are mom and dad, and generally the assumption that partners coming in together are married. Mm -hmm. So for individuals who are transgender and becoming wanting to become pregnant, there are a multitude of ways uh, that they can accomplish that. And that may or may not require fertility treatments. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: So even beginning the potential trauma of the preperinatal with fertility treatments, if they experience IUI or even at-home insemination, the process of going through and finding a donor, Mm -hmm. a sperm donor, if they choose to use a donor, what that might look like at donor banks who may discriminate against a transgender man wanting to become pregnant. If, for example, the couple is a transgender man and his husband, you know, there might be some confusion as to how to address the couple or there might be assumptions made that the husband's sperm was used or that the transgender man's eggs were used when may not be the case or may be the case.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there are so many ways that conception can happen, especially when medicine has to get involved.
0: Right. So if it's a plan and you're needing to go through with medical assistance or medical interventions, and there's like a whole long list of things that someone might be even thinking about or starting to have anxiety or worry about in terms of that process.
1: Absolutely. And then there are scenarios where individuals may have the capacity to become pregnant with their partner and not require medical intervention. For example, if a transgender man and a transgender woman both go off of their hormones, there is a potential that they both retain fertility if they were on hormones to begin with, and that was part of their medical transition. There is a potential that they retain fertility and could together create a child and the the transgender man, who potentially would be in the father role, would be the one carrying that child.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So even in that scenario, not assuming that the person who would be mother would be the one carrying the child, that it would in fact be dad. Mm -hmm.
0: So if someone is going to be interfacing with a medical system more, then obviously, again, going back to that finding providers who are affirmative and understand more what's going on, obviously will reduce, ideally, reduce the stress load and therefore reduce, as you were saying before, the potential trauma or anxiety or depression in the process.
1: Absolutely. Unfortunately, affirming providers and provider systems, like health systems, are few and far between for the number of transgender people wanting to become pregnant and wanting to give birth. An additional layer on top of that is there may need to be a discussion about a person's legal name if they have not legally transitioned their name and gender marker, particularly if they're using insurance. Mm. and what insurance will or will not cover, whether they have legally transitioned or not. I understand that there is a CPT code modifier for billing for insurance, for example, for services that would traditionally be designated for someone who is female in the event that their legal documents say male. So for someone who has completed the transition legally to change their identifying documents, to say male. So for example, that's commonly used with pap smears and screenings, Mm -hmm. but if a person has a legal gender marker or an identifying gender marker as male and they're getting an ultrasound to check fetal development, then that might require a CPT code modifier or there might be a discussion about that and how to navigate that, what insurance will and will not cover.
0: Yeah, like so. As we're talking about systems, I'm thinking of all of the many multitudes of systems that someone might have to jump through. Whether, like, you mentioned legal, there's medical, there's just even legal identification and how that matches up with where they are in their process. This is a lot to navigate.
4: Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
3: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that wanna be clutter free.
1: Absolutely. And even thinking after in the postpartum period, you know, navigating the, the child's birth certificate
5: mm-hmm.
1: and how parents are designated. Some states have added parent one and parent two to be gender neutral, mm-hmm. or they have the option for different designations. But by and large, birth certificates say, mother and father.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. It's just listed on, that's the kind of standard operating procedure is just like print out a bunch of those. And that's what it's all written on.
1: I was going to say with that, there's the assumption that we talked about the binary of male and female and people potentially using mother and father as their parent designators, there may be individuals who choose not to use those parent designators. For example, one term that's becoming more common with people who are genderqueer or non-binary is the term Rennie, which is a shortened version of parent and adding the Y at the end, like mommy or daddy. Mm-hmm. So that's a gender neutral option instead of mommy or daddy is Rennie. But families are making their own terms. They're coming up with what fits them best. Okay. So. Again, not making that assumption of the birthing person being mom or mommy, or even if they are female presenting and someone might make that assumption, making sure to check in, you know, what are you going to be called? What do you want your child to call you when they have that capacity?
0: So that kind of a question would be coming from somebody who understands to ask the question. Absolutely. Most people don't. Right. I mean, I think that's what you're describing is that most providers, most systems are making assumptions and not checking in. Yes.
1: And much like pronouns. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm just thinking of all kind of like, I don't know exactly how to term that, but it sounds like sort of, if I can use like a microaggression, it sounds like, I don't know how to term that, but it is absolutely kind of not seeing the individual. And then I'm just assuming and imagining that then the person themselves has to go through the process of either advocating for themselves or somebody else's or then going through whatever process to get, I don't know, this like relatively simple stuff changed, like a sheet of paper that says, you know, what they prefer to be called. Like how many opportunities are there for them to feel like they have to go and like fix stuff because people aren't asking them these questions.
1: And how much emotional energy that's taking every single time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge amount of stress. I mean, again, I'm making an assumption, but I'm assuming that's stressful. It's a pretty accurate assumption. Yeah. This is all the time interfacing with people, you know, people who don't get it. Absolutely. And as even looking beyond
1: the perinatal period, as the child grows, having to navigate. And like you said, those microaggressions,
5: Mm -hmm.
1: they are absolutely microaggressions misnaming and misgendering people are the most common microaggressions that transgender people experience. And in such a heavily gendered system, Mm -hmm. that trauma can add up over time for that individual, depending on, you know, where they're at with their own level of acceptance, their Mm -hmm. own level of being able to advocate for themselves and the support system that they have in place.
0: Sure. And it sounds exhausting to be up against that all the time. And then, again, I mean, as you're talking through it, I'm trying to understand it, like how it would affect someone on a deeper level of constantly being unseen and not validated. Absolutely. And
1: in the process of trying to grow a tiny human.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, as you were saying before, in terms of just like general perinatal mental health, like This can be a very stressful time, and then also navigating all of the things that you've been describing, and we haven't even touched on all of the things that someone could experience. Just the potential for stress is just there. It's like ever-present. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. There are so many added layers with those additional minority stressors. Mm -hmm. As we're talking about all those added layers, things that are potentially unseen stressors within not only the healthcare system but mental health care and the experience in general, being aware of implicit biases is so important. so for example, a genderqueer or non-binary person who was assigned female at birth may not necessarily identify with femininity or motherhood or womanhood despite that they may present you know, with some female expression. They may not necessarily present as androgynous or as gender neutral or even as masculine. So not making those assumptions, even though, oh, I see this person in front of me who looks like a woman. They are dressed in what one would assume are women's clothes. So I'm going to assume that they identify this way. And that may or may not be true for that individual.
0: Right. Again, pointing to the importance of asking and not assuming. Absolutely.
1: And then the importance of recognizing that what may manifest as, say, postpartum anxiety or depression may in fact be an individual coming to terms with their gender identity after the fact. So there was recently a story shared on the Fourth Trimester Body Project where an individual experienced significant mental health distress after... A pregnancy was terminated and through that process began their journey of coming to terms with their gender identity and recognizing their authentic self. So recognizing that anxiety that's manifesting after pregnancy may not necessarily be related to perinatal mental health in and of itself, but may also be a manifestation of gender dysphoria. So exploring what that discomfort is like for that person. And if there's any kind of discomfort around the traditional notions of femininity, motherhood, womanhood, what pregnancy was like for them, exploring what
0: that means.
5: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So again, I don't know if you can speak to this, but as you were talking about that, it reminded me of the kind of concept and reality that gender and identity are fluid. It's not like you pick something and that's it forever and it never has any variation. And if that's correct, then that's also kind of part of the process throughout the perinatal period. Absolutely. Absolutely. So people's kind of sense of themselves can be kind of shifting and changing in the process.
1: Absolutely. And they may not recognize it before they become pregnant or there might have been some inkling of discomfort, but not necessarily the language to know what to call it or how to name it. Mm -hmm. And that discomfort may intensify during or after pregnancy. And that's the time when that may come to light for Mm -hmm. that individual.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So you're suggesting and saying to not just assume just straight anxiety or postpartum anxiety, that there may be some kind of identity related things to explore there.
1: Absolutely. I think that's, Explore what that discomfort looks like for that person, what it's related to, and what you know potential underlying factors may be, and not to make the assumption that it is only say, postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression, but that there may be again added layers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I think as I mentioned before, you know, this conversation is—we could be having this for days. There's so much to understand here. I really appreciate you giving us some of the really basics, some of the fundamentals that we should know. And I, you know, encourage anyone who's listening to look up the resources that you suggested and to certainly deepen their own education and understanding as well.
1: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And it's very unfortunate that we don't have the resources and research to support more concrete information we have just begun to healthily scratch the surface with all the information that's there can be there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and starting this discussion with us and kind of deepening our understanding a little bit more of the perinatal mental health of someone who identifies as transgender. I appreciate you and your time and your willingness to come on and share with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for opening the door to this conversation for inclusivity in perinatal mental health.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again, Abby, for coming on. If you would like to get connected with Abby, I will have links to their contact in the show notes for today's episode, very specifically the professional Facebook page. And then Abby has also included a lot of other really great resources for us to take a look at, and that will all be available in the show notes. If you're a new listener, please pop over to momandmind.com to find links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or links to the many places where you can hear the Mom and Mind podcast. Mom and Mind is also part of Parents on Demand Network, where you can find loads of early parenting podcasts. We're so grateful that you were with us today. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com.